What do you expect from a healthy society? Honesty, morality, people enjoying safety, stability, and security, and where community values are shared. And there's integrity as well, both in public and in private. Well, tragically, those sterling qualities no longer describe our society today. While there is a remnant crying out for liberty and freedom, society seems to be hell-bent rushing toward the inevitable end-time judgments predicted in the book of Revelation. However, in such dangerous conditions, a true believer can shine and make a real impact for victory and revival. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. It can easily be argued that our world is in decline. So many churches are embarrassingly apostate, and the culture is rapidly unraveling with climate change rising as the new religion. The faith of our fathers is much less impactful on our culture than when I was young. Today, I want to share an update on some prophetic happenings regarding Israel and the nations, and encourage you to hold on, not to faint, because the appearing of the Lord is imminent, and that blessed hope gives us strength to endure. And I also want to encourage you to examine your faith to see if it's really genuine. That is absolutely crucial because those who profess belief in Messiah and who claim to be serving Him in ministry must analyze the terrifying words of Yeshua in Matthew 7, 22, where he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Three times in this one verse alone, professing believers will claim to have accomplished exploits in your name, in your name, in your name. These people will claim to have been genuine believers because they call Jesus Lord, Lord. Well, my friends, it is vital that we do the works of the Lord. And that's why this program is called Exploits. Daniel 1132b proclaims that the people who do know their God will be strong and carry out exploits. But the key is, of course, knowing God. And that also means God knows you. This is vital because in Matthew 7, 23, Jesus replies plainly to the false believers, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, iniquity. So people in the churches can talk about signs and wonders and casting out demons, and many are prophesying ad infinitum on the internet. But when Jesus returns as judge, when he returns as the Lion of Judah, and not just as the sacrificial lamb as he was on his first coming, he will reveal that many professing believers got the cart before the horse, and they focused on exercising ministry gifts rather than establishing 
a real relationship with the Lord. Apparently, the ones Jesus will rebuke so terribly never experienced being born again. Apparently, they never entered into a living relationship with the king. Apparently, they never entered salvation through the narrow gate, leaving behind all their worldly baggage. Apparently, they were unwilling to lay down their selfish lives to follow the Lamb. And so they were spiritual renegades. Signs and wonders and true prophetic words certainly do help to build the kingdom of God. But only when these godly acts of the Holy Spirit are carried out by genuine believers who have repented in His name from their sins, who obey the Lord in His name, and who act accurately at His command. We can't name drop the name of Jesus like the seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva name dropped the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, when they attempted to perform an exorcism in the name of Jesus, the demon fiercely turned on them demanding, Jesus we know and Paul we recognize, but who are you? The demon living in the possessed individual acknowledged the authority of the name of Jesus when it's uttered by a genuine believer. But the seven pretenders, the sons of Siva, were overpowered by the evil spirit, and they received such a beating that they ran out of the house badly bruised and beaten with their clothes torn off. And the harsh reality is that in the future, the Lord will say to many who are prophesying and claiming to work great miracles, I don't even know you. I never knew you. In other words, Jesus will say, we've had no real relationship. You've been acting out of your own soulish desires or an exhibitionist spirit. You were not doing spirit-directed works. And that's the difference. We have to be sure that we're being spirit-led day by day. We have to seek the Lord in His face continually to be sure that we're doing the genuine exploits of the Lord at His direction and command, and that we're not acting out our own willful desires, ideas, or opinions. I strongly believe that a true born-again believer is busy doing exploits, the works the Lord has assigned, but also at the same time, genuine believers are diligently watching for His soon return. You see, if you don't care about Jesus' return, something is wrong in your relationship. Either you're not really born again, or you're a carnal, worldly believer. In this regard, I want to share something that a friend posted on social media. It's a provocative question from a Jewish person named Hananya, who's eagerly looking for the first coming of Messiah. I'm eagerly looking for his second coming, but looking for Messiah largely affects one's attitudes and decisions, whether it's a Jew looking for his first coming or a Christian looking for the second coming of Jesus. Hananya asked, what if you knew that Moshiach, the Messiah, would come a month from now or a year from now or two years from now? Would that affect your immediate decisions? He asked, do you have real emunah? That's the Hebrew word for faith. Do you have real emunah that he's coming? 
Do you always anticipate this or do you just pay lip service to the idea? And if that's the case, then Messiah is not really real to you in your belief in his eventual coming will have no practical difference to your mentality or decisions. Hananya wrote that anticipating Messiah's arrival is one of the 13 fundamental articles of the Jewish faith. And so if this isn't real to you, then you have much bigger problems, he said, than the threat of losing your job or going into debt for an education. If Messiah isn't real to you, and if you don't really anticipate that he will come, and if you don't factor the redemption into any of your decisions, then you should take a long, hard look at yourself in the mirror and admit that all you have is your temporal needs and conveniences. And if Messiah's redemption is not real to you, it doesn't matter if he comes tomorrow or next year or even in your lifetime because you will have behaved largely as an unbeliever like the rest of the world. However, he said, if redemption is real to you, then you will realize that today's power structure in the world is an illusion and you will make your decisions differently. You will find the resilience and fortitude to hold out for as long as it takes to live righteously and to do the right thing. You won't give in to evil no matter what because you have the vision to pass the test of living loyally with God. The coming of Messiah is more important than anything else. So if you knew Moshiach, the Messiah, is coming for real, how would you live? Well, that's the provocative question of one Orthodox Jew that I read this week. And I think every genuine believer in Jesus should have the same attitude of anticipation that Jesus, the Messiah, is coming again. The Apostle Paul wrote, Understand and realize this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, the word perilous in this verse is Strong's New Testament word 5467, which means fiercely difficult to cope with, very hard to bear. There are only two occurrences of this particular Greek word translated perilous or fierce in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy 3, 1, describing the perilous last days, and Matthew 8, 28, used, it's the same word to describe two extremely violent, demon-possessed men who lived amongst tombs. And violent men are everywhere these days. In fact, the terrorist group Hamas, even their name in Hebrew means violence. And here we are trying to raise children and grandchildren in these fiercely perilous times. The good news is that in such dangerous conditions, a true believer can have a real and lasting impact for eternity. Sure, we'd rather live in easier, less complex times, but you and I are privileged to be brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And our task is simple, to be salt, to be light preservatives of society, even if conditions surrounding us are harsh. We have to develop a pilgrim mentality and not cling too tightly to this rapidly changing world. Every true believer is a pilgrim. 
A recent weekly Torah portion in the annual cycle of readings in the synagogues was one of my favorites. It's the portion that was read around the world the year my husband was born. The portion is called in Hebrew, Lech Laha, meaning go forth. The Torah portion begins with Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go, Lech Laha, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. My husband's parents left England to go forth to immigrate to North America. Peter and I left America to go forth to live in Israel. And from there, we have gone forth to the nations as the Lord has continually led us. And in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.8 gives commentary on this passage. It says that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. According to commentary at the Hebrew for Christians website, every person of faith is commanded daily to lech lecha, to go forth by crossing over from the world and its deadening habits to live as an exile in this world with God. Paradoxically, we find ourselves when we're willing to lose ourselves, Jesus said, when we leave the labels, the roles, and identities this world foists upon us, and when we resolve instead to seek God's kingdom. As Yeshua said in Matthew 16, 25, whoever will save his life shall lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. It never ceases to amaze me how the weekly Torah portions dovetail with current events. During the reading of the Go Forth Torah portion, Israel celebrated Yom Aliyah, meaning the Day of Ascending, which is a new holiday in the state of Israel that encourages Jews to come home. To make Aliyah means to ascend, to return up to the land of the Jews' forefathers, the Promised Land. Amazingly, since the start of the coronavirus outbreak, about 40,000 Jews have gone forth. They have returned home to Israel. Considering the hardships, the quarantines, and the balagan, that's a Hebrew word for chaos and bureaucracy, 40,000 new returnees to Israel is an amazing corporate exploit. Billions of Jews still live in exile, even though God proclaimed that a day will come when not one of his people will remain outside the borders of Israel. In fact, in the news recently, 235 members of Israel's B'nai Manasseh made Aliyah. B'nai Manasseh means sons of the tribe of Manasseh. As he blessed the returning former exiles, Rabbi Michael Froon noted that the tribal members returned in honor of Yom Aliyah, the day of ascending. Rabbi Froon reported that after 2,700 years of exile, the lost tribe of Manasseh is returning to Zion. Intercessors for Israel are asking God to remove all fear of change from the Jews in the diaspora and to replace fear with 
homesickness and a love for adventure and an understanding of the privilege to participate in the fulfillment of prophetic history by making Aliyah as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 43 and so many other Bible verses. It's no coincidence that many Israelis living in exile are becoming homesick. And as anti-Semitic hunters become more violent, many Jews are unable to ignore or misinterpret the signs of the times. They're increasingly being drawn by God to return to Zion, where Jerusalem is their ancestral, eternal, and undivided capital. While the many enemies of the Jewish returnees accuse them of being occupiers in their own homeland, Israel's enemies have no response when they are reminded that King David established Jerusalem as the capital of the first Jewish kingdom more than 3,000 years ago. The Jewish people in the land of Israel today are the indigenous people of the land, and they're back as a sovereign nation after 2,000 years of exile. Today's modern state of Israel is the third Jewish commonwealth in the promised land. Meanwhile, another sign of the time is that the climate change cult now owes more to religion than rationality. Former President Barack Obama is the keynote speaker for a Celebrate Mother Earth event. And according to one of his tweets, all of us should follow the young people to protect the planet and demand more from leaders for climate change. Janet Daly wrote in the Daily Telegraph newspaper that a fundamental failure to understand the real nature and purpose of science risks dire consequences. Everybody seems to accept after recent events that scientific advice can lead to disastrous government policy. Dutifully following what government ministers insisted on calling the science was, it turns out, not such a great idea after all, according to the Daily Telegraph article. Now the governments of the world are currently facing another set of far-reaching decisions prompted by scientific advice, which involve even greater potential for a catastrophe. In his book, Climate Change, the New Religion, author Peter Nelson wrote that people feel the establishment has lied to them. They don't trust governments and don't want to be lied to anymore. Now people are looking for something else to believe in as a focal point for their lives. Thus enter the new religion, climate change, which can unite people in a common cause. So although the climate has always been changing, it's a celebrity cause resonating with a lot of people, the idea of saving the planet. So tragic that these people have no biblical worldview, and therefore they haven't a clue that all this climate talk is in vain, because with the soon return of Messiah Yeshua, the earth is going to be renovated and restored. So if you're worried that mankind will destroy this earth, the Bible teaches that mankind will not be allowed to destroy it. God who lives outside of time has spoken in this word that he will judge the nations and presently this earth is groaning with end time signs such as earthquakes and so forth. But God will prevent mankind from destroying the planet. And we have his sure word on that in Genesis chapter eight and verse 22. Listen up and take this verse on board 
and so you can relax about climate change. God said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So aren't you glad that we have God's unchanging, immutable word on the matter rather than having to worry about climate change? Politicians will waste trillions of dollars in the end because they have no vision for the soon coming government of the Prince of Peace. I'd like to bring us back to what our real focus should be, soul winning and understanding God's way of salvation. If you seek heaven God's way, you will come by grace and not by religious law. The Bible teaches that there's no way you can earn your way into heaven, so don't even try. Come God's way, through the door, through Messiah Yeshua. I'm reminded of the entrance to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. It's low and narrow and you have to bend down low and bow to enter. Groups have to line up and enter one person at a time. And that's the way we come to the Lord individually, one soul at a time, trusting in his merits, not ours. Religion seeks entrance to eternity by its own merits, by its special rituals and codes of morality. By contrast, the true way of salvation is by the cross, where the sinner offers God nothing. Jesus accomplished salvation on our behalf at the cross. To explain salvation and entrance to the cross's benefits, Jesus described two gates, one wide and the other narrow. He also described two ways, one wide and the other narrow, constricted. Furthermore, the Savior said that there are two groups. In one, there are many, and in the other group, there are few. When you come God's way, it's through a very narrow gate, and Jesus said very few actually find it. In Jerusalem, when we go on prayer walks on the ramparts of the old city walls, we purchase a ticket, and we have to enter through a turnstile gate, only one person can enter at a time. There's not room to go through with anybody else. A husband and wife or two best friends can't enter together. Nor can you enter with your father or your mother, your brother or your sister. Entering is not a family event and it's not a group event. The gate of salvation is like this turnstile. Only one person can go through at a time. The kingdom of God advances one person at a time, one individual soul at a time. The point is, you must come through that gate alone. Moreover, the gate of salvation leads to a blessed feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb in the heavenly Jerusalem, where we'll be forever with the Lord, safe from sin and destruction. But some people are unable to enter this narrow gate because of the pride of life, and others procrastinate until it's too late. The gate is narrow, but it's always open, and best of all, entrance is free. To enter the turnstile gate on the city ramparts, we have to pay a fee, but God's salvation gate is free. The price is Messiah's blood. His blood is the currency of the kingdom. Now, if I face a rich man's gate or a royal gate, it's going to be closed. It's going to be shut. 
You can look through the bars of many majestic and beautiful gates, but you can't get in. But passing on, you come to a little wicket gate, which opens into a narrow footpath over rugged ground, leading to a light shining ahead. That little wicket gate represents the way of salvation, and it's always open day and night. That little gate is described in the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, by John Bunyan. Bunyan's humble wicked gate symbolizes Jesus as the way for sinners. But sinners who claim other saviors, including themselves, trusting in their own good deeds, will discover that they have been deceived. In Pilgrim's Progress, an evangelist instructs Christian to flee to the wicked gate, declaring it's the only place where salvation can be found. So indeed, Christian introduces himself at that gate as a needy sinner, and he's warmly welcome without any condition. And from there, he goes on to lay down his great sin burden at the foot of the cross. But self-proclaimed pilgrims who try to bypass the wicked gate never make it to the celestial city, to heaven. John Bunyan upheld the biblical view that Jesus is the only one who is able to redeem sinners. Jesus told us to enter that narrow gate. Socially, we spend much of our life trying to run with a crowd, to belong to groups, even church groups. But the true teaching of Jesus is that we have to deny ourselves. We have to deny our family, disavow our friends, and come to Messiah alone. Although salvation is free, going to the cross alone is contrary to moving with the crowd. Nevertheless, Jesus said, you must enter this narrow gate, which is himself, alone and with difficulty. And that's why so few will find it. It's difficult because the gospel goes contrary to religion, false prophets, and philosophy. But once you find the truth, Jesus says you will enter the narrow gate even with great difficulty. In Luke 13.24, the text literally says, agonize to enter in through the narrow gate. Because many, Jesus said, will seek to enter in and will not be able. To agonize to enter is a much stronger rendition than the King James translation, which says strive to enter the narrow gate. According to the commentaries, this word strive in the original Greek is very significant and impressive because it's actually agonize. To agonize implies the concentration of all of our faculties, energies, the straining of every nerve, the union of body and soul, putting forth great effort, determined to succeed or perish. Jesus said a day will come when many shall seek to enter in, but they're not going to be able. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, come through the narrow gate and declare in our hearts what the Bible reveals, that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if you're willing to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, the Bible promises you shall be saved. Amen and Hallelujah. Well, if you have any comments or questions, let's talk about it together through social media or at our website, exploits.tv. 
And please don't forget to download our free Jerusalem Channel app for access to our videos and Bible reading plan. We also offer many ebooks available at our website on a variety of important subjects. Now, until our next time together, I'll be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom. I'm Christine Dark. Maranatha. Mm-hmm.